0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Well, look, when it comes to hyperlinks, that is a very interesting question. Originally, I excluded it because, to me, a link is just an address. But of course, sometimes there are contextual components that come along with the address, and those would deliver some of the substance. For example, if the title were included in the hyperlink. I've heard many comments and received criticism on that point, and I would be quite comfortable to modify it to include
1: hyperlinks
0: in the bill. Earlier this year, Senator Claude Carignan introduced Bill S. fa a bill that purports to address concerns about the viability of the Canadian media sector by amending the Copyright Act. The bill for the moment excludes hyperlinks, as well as an insubstantial portion of the work, which led me to post that this was a copyright bill that really does nothing. But as you just heard, the senator is now even considering adding hyperlinks to the mix. The Senate has been studying the bill in recent weeks, with Senator Paula Simons serving as the bill critic and one of the leads on the issue. Senator Simons was a longtime journalist before being appointed to the Senate, and while an ardent supporter of local journalism, she's been critical of the proposed legislation. She joins me on the podcast to discuss the state of Journalism Canada, why she doesn't think social media companies stole stories from the media, and what Canada should be doing to encourage innovation in the media sector. Senator Simons, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: I'm very happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you here. For let, why don't we start for those that aren't familiar with your background? Uh, we're going to be talking, obviously, about the Senate bill uh, that deals with copyright, the news sector, social media companies. But you've had many, many years of experience in journalism before becoming a senator. Can you describe a bit that experience? What before you before you became a senator?
1: Sure. I was appointed to the Senate in October of 2018, and before that I had spent 30 years as a working journalist. Uh, Like many, a Canadian journalist, I've done a little bit of everything. Uh, You know, I got my start in my very earliest start in private radio. I worked for magazines. I spent uh, six years as a radio producer with the CBC, but I spent uh, the last 23 years of my career as a uh, Reporter, investigative journalist, and eventually political columnist with the Edmonton Journal, and uh, a fair bit of magazine freelance work along the way. So I've done TV, radio, magazine, newspapers, uh, podcasting—done it all.
0: Okay, so you really are the perfect person, I think, to, to come <laughs> and, and talk about talk about these issues. And you know, for anyone that even doubts it before they've even listened to this, um, they they should take the time to watch the uh, really what I thought was a must-watch speech that you gave, critiquing. Uh, the Senate bill that purports to address the concerns around the new sector and social media companies, but I thought that you did a really good job, both of highlighting the challenges but also uh, talking about some of the shortcomings in the policy pro- proposal. You know, why don't we start with the problems in the sector right now because I think it's undeniable that there are challenges. Your talk you you talked a bit about how things have changed for the the Canadian media. Can you talk a bit about those changes and and what you attribute to the decline in in fortune?
1: Sure. I, when I got my start in media, I did not realize that it was the golden age. You always think the golden age happened before you showed up. But, you know, the story I like to tell is that when I arrived at the Edmonton Journal newsroom in 1995, the building was so full that the newsroom, you didn't get your own desk. You were, you know, you sat someplace for the morning and then the Afternoon shift came in and took that desk, and the assignment editors assigned so many stories they couldn't possibly all fit in the paper. Although the paper was a great big fat doorstop of a thing, uh, so that you had to compete for for news hole, and we thought that was normal. I mean, the newsroom, if anything, was overstaffed. It was a remarkable it was a remarkable time to be a reporter, but over the twenty three years that I worked at the paper. It shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank. And you can see the exact um, fault line. It happens in 2005. And that is the year that people really start moving to digital advertising. And what I noted in my speech is over that time from 2005 till 2019, the newspaper industry lost two. 0.5 billion dollars in advertising uh it started with the loss the collapse of classified ads which nobody really understood how important classified ads were to the daily newspaper they brought in you know about a billion dollars in revenue to daily newspapers across canada a year and one day those classified ads were just all gone Uh, Gone to Kijiji, gone to Craigslist, uh, gone to to various other smaller online uh, uh, portals. And after the classifieds, they came for the local advertising and once all of that had disappeared to the digital realm, newsrooms started frantically cutting. And I used to liken it to being on a life raft in the North Atlantic where it's really cold and you want to send up flares so that somebody can see you. So you cut the logs off the end of the light raft to build a fire. And this seems like a really good strategy until you have taken all the logs and burned them and there's no life raft left anymore. And that's really what media companies... uh Across Canada, across North America, across the Western world, had, have done. They've slashed and slashed and slashed their staffs until there's almost no one left in newsrooms, and and then readerships decline, subscriptions go down, advertisers walk away, and so it becomes a snake eating its tail. Uh, you you cannot you cannot cut your way back to profitability.
0: Yeah no the i mean you you've highlighted both the the classified ad impact the broader impact and that shift to ad dollars we'll talk about digital advertising a little bit later but one of the other factors that that you point to uh, is competition that at one point in time many of the the local paper so to speak had what felt like a monopoly position in their in their local market and that's no more yeah Can i mean you, talk you a had bit a- about that
1: You had a geographic monopoly because if you lived in Regina or Fredericton or Victoria where there was only one newspaper or even, you know, in Edmonton or Calgary or Winnipeg where there were Ottawa where there were two, I mean, the newspaper had a geographic monopoly. You could not go online to read things. So you read things in your daily newspaper. That was where you read your stories. If you wanted to know what was going on in your community, the daily newspaper was where you turned. And if you wanted to advertise and reach local consumers, the local newspaper was where you put your advertising dollars. And so for a lot of big city, you know, not, not big city newspapers, a lot of large newspapers in medium sized cities, it was almost a license to print money. I mean, the Edmonton Journal, when I was working there in the early 2000s, was uh, for a time at least the most profitable paper in the uh, in the chain Uh and, you know, I remember when the newspaper celebrated its 100th birthday, the paper rented out the Winspear Center, the big concert hall. It's like, you know, for, for your listeners in Ottawa, it's, it's sort of the, the size of the National Arts Center, rented out the entire concert hall for an enormous party where there was, you know, fabulous catered food on every level and all the advertisers came. And Michael Buble uh, performed a, a concert just for journal staff and advertisers. I mean, there was so much money. And then, poof, one day, it was gone.
0: Mm. Incredible. As part of that that one day, it was gone. Uh, obviously, today, much of the focus is on the role that the platforms played. But, you know, one of the, the most striking things that I thought you said in that talk was, with respect to the platforms, they didn't steal our stories, we gave it to them. You know, how did that play out?
1: Well, when... When the internet was new and all, we were so excited to be able to share our content. We thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. We would be able to get our stories in front of more eyes, not just our local readers in the paper. But you know, for me as a columnist, it was really exciting. If my column got shared on Facebook or Twitter, it meant that Potentially thousands of people across the country could read it. And so that was wonderful for my ego. But at first, we were very cautious about it. I remember that the paper actually had a rule at one point that none of my columns were allowed to be tweeted out. Even though I was on Twitter as a journalist, I wasn't allowed to tweet links to my columns because the paper believed uh, very flatteringly, again, to my ego, that people would buy the paper on purpose to read my column. And I remember being really angry and fighting with them and saying, no, no, no. If I want to reach new readers, young readers, I have to be online. Uh, And so we were very keen to, to, we didn't think of it as giving our stories away because we believed the newspaper um, would still make lots of money on advertising and subscription. And we thought that this was a way to promote the paper, to get more people to subscribe and to get more people to advertise. So, we were very excited to have our stuff on Twitter and Facebook. And we would go to classes uh, internally to learn how to write search engine optimized headlines and leads so that Google News or Apple News or, or you know uh, uh, Microsoft, you know, all of them would be more likely to pick up and share our content. And we didn't think about paywalls. We thought that I mean we really thought it was like a loss leader. That you know we 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 would sort of put these shiny stories in the window and that would drive people to subscribe to the paper. This this was a miscalculation.
0: It was and clearly it's had a, had an impact. Uh, can you talk a bit I want to get into sort of some of the proposals to try to address that but um what's the, what, what do you see as the the impact from the the loss of local journalism? We
1: have lost something that we're that we're frankly never going to get back. The days when the newspaper was the one point of call for readers and advertisers are gone. And what we've lost is a real sense of community connection and a shared community cultural literacy. There was a time when I could legitimately say that everyone in Edmonton read the Edmonton Journal they didn't all read it the same way some people only read the sports section some people only read the food section some people only read the you know the comics but there was a shared sense of community connection and involvement the paper was the touchstone the template it was the it was the shared source of knowledge about what was going on in your community, what was going on at your local school board, what was going on at your local city council, what was going on with the drainage, what was going on with the bus routes. And it was where everybody came together. I mean, our letters page sometimes used to spill over because people were so involved and felt so connected and felt such a pride in their local paper. And once we fractured the information universe into thousands of tiny shards, people weren't interested in that broad general issue newspaper. It's a little bit like the death of the department store. I mean, when I was growing up, Woodward's, because I'm from the West, Woodward's and Eaton's and the Bay, you went and everything you wanted was at the Bay. Everything you wanted was at Woodward's. You could buy a Chesterfield, you could buy a television, you could buy children's toys, you could buy, uh, you know, women's fancy clothing, you could get, uh, you know, uh, groceries. You could get everything at the Woodward's. The newspaper was like that big department store, and just as people have stopped shopping in department stores, they have shopped. So they have stopped wanting to read a general interest publication that gives them a broad overview of what's going on in their community. They want to be micro targeted. They seek out stories that appeal to their very particular interests. Everybody's in silos. Everybody's in their little, you know, their their little. Um, bubbles, uh, talking to the people who think the way they do, seeking out the news that conforms to their pre-existing ideas of the world. We thought that Twitter and Facebook were going to give us all of the information, that it was going to be like a digital library of Alexandria. We would be able to know everything. In point of fact, that kind of information anarchy, that cacophony of information, the torrent of information that kept pouring down on us was overwhelming for people. And so over time, it's not just a question of the algorithms, although the algorithms make it possible. People were not interested in swimming in the deep sea of all the information the internet had to offer. More and more and more, they sought out the little, you know, the tide pools, the shallow shoals, where they were comfortable and where they could see the stories and the information that, that played to their, uh, to their existing prejudices and their existing worldviews.
0: Yeah. No, this, I mean, you, you paint such a, a dynamic picture at that point in time. And I'd and, and certainly, I have this a similar kind of re- recollection growing up in Toronto, of my local paper. So there were several, but it was that same kind of relationship. I have to say with, with all of that, with your, your background and experience and, clear love for for the sector and the importance that that you've ascribed to it. I think one would have thought that you would be you know the, the poster person for uh, a Senate bill that uh, seeks to try to address the issue in this case purportedly by using copyright to require payments by social media services. Uh, but here you are as the critic for the bill. Um, why don't we start, I'd like to, to get into some of those criticisms. Why don't we start with, with the notion that the bill misunderstands digital advertising, which is one of the points that you, that you raise in your speech. How so?
1: Well, I mean, the bill sort of begins its foundational premise is that newspapers are being robbed of advertising revenue because these big media platforms, uh, uh, Google, Facebook, uh, uh, Apple, are stealing the stories and monetizing them. So the, sort of the, the, the paradigm on which this is based is that once upon a time, we sold the ads on those stories, and now Facebook, Google, Twitter are selling ads based on our copy. Well, that's a tiny bit true, but that's not really the fundamental problem. Facebook is not getting rich by selling ads against our stories. They're getting rich by selling ads against your aunt's cat video or, you know, um your cousin's anti-vax ranting. Facebook wants engagements. And news stories make up, they claim anyway, for for take take that with the grain of salt for what it's worth, that news stories make up only about 5% of the content that's being shared on their platforms. So, you know, you begin with this kind of I don't want to call it a paranoid fantasy because paranoid that, that that's unkind, that's not that's not what I mean at all. But you sort of begin with a misapprehension that the reason that uh, local newspapers are suffering is because the social media platforms are stealing our stories and the advertising dollars that are attached to those stories. That's not true. They've stolen our advert. I mean, first of all, I should stop saying our since I'm not a member of the working press anymore, but um, it's not that they've stolen the content in the first place. The news organizations have given and indeed forced, begged, begged them to take the content, but the advertising revenues are not coming from monetizing the stories. They're coming because Google and Facebook offered cheaper, better targeted ads. So, you know, you want to advertise for your little thing, for your big thing. Facebook and Google can tell you exactly who's clicking on the ad. They can send it to exactly, you know, you want to advertise to women between the ages of 35 and 45 who have, who have school age children and an interest in tennis. Facebook can find those exact people for you. No newspaper can compete with that. No newspaper ever could, whether online or in print.
0: Yeah no I think that's a great point it's it's one that I've been making as as part of this debate as well and you know that the, it's the, this content is exceptionally important it's everything if you're a media organization if you're a social media service or a search engine it's one of a myriad of pieces of of content that people are sharing and isn't just isn't all that economically important at the end of the day which is why when i i would argue why when we've seen some of those companies arguably engaging in ill-advised uh Threats or commit or you know statements that they're going to leave a market if they're forced to do this from an economic perspective. I think it's actually an understandable position. It might not be tenable from a broader political perspective, but economically, one can understand why they might make that case. You also delve into copyright. Um, talking about hyperlinks and and fair dealing and and conclude i think rightly uh, that it just doesn't apply here and in this case this you know these kinds of issues around hyperlinks and, and headlines and all the sort of content takes on i think an even a greater import um when the, the Senate, senator senator non who's sponsored this has now said well maybe i should have included links maybe links even ought to be factored in as well can you talk a little bit about the the copyright analysis that you've engaged in or the thinking that you have with respect to how copyright applies or perhaps doesn't apply in the context of news sharing this way. All
1: right. I have to say, there are two of us in this conversation. Uh, Dr. Geist, one of us is an internationally acclaimed expert in copyright law, and the other one is me. So uh, <laughs> I am not going to embarrass myself by explaining to you, uh, a guy who's written a bunch of books on copyright, how copyright works. Uh, so here I go. So uh, Senator Guerignon's bill uh, divides copyright into two things. So he's, as, as I don't need to tell you, um, Canadian journalists own the copyright to their work. If you're a freelancer, you own the copyright uh, until your death and then your heirs own it for 50 and soon to be 70 years after your death. If you work on staff for a publication as I did for the Edmonton Journal, then your employer owns the copyright for 50 years after the date of publication. What Senator Carignan is proposing is that we create a neighboring right, a right to remuneration that would be like a royalty. And he's sort of modeling this on the way music royalties work. So if you think about uh, SOCAN, and you think about which is the the, collect- the copyright collective that represents Canadian uh, musicians. So you're a musician You write some songs, you put out a CD, people, you sell your CD, people buy your CD, and you own the copyright to the music. But you also want people to play your songs, not just at home. You want uh, nightclubs to play your songs. You want restaurants to play your songs. You want gyms to play your songs. And you want radio stations and, and, and music streaming services to play your songs. So you get paid a tiny, tiny amount, a tiny little royalty for each time a song is played. And that is how uh, royalties work in the music industry. What Senator Carignan is proposing is a similar model for print. So his logic is just as um, you know, you have to buy a license if you're a uh, you know a, 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 an aerobic studio. I guess I don't have aerobic studios anymore. I date myself. But um, you know, just as you have to buy a license to play music if you're a nightclub, or just as you have to you know send a record uh, if you're a radio station of what songs you played that the big media platforms should pay a royalty for every time they reproduce a story. The challenge is that it's settled Canadian law that sharing a hyperlink does not constitute a republication. So if I tweet a link, I haven't violated anybody's copyright. I've just created a an online pointer. It's like a digital footnote that tells people where to go to read the story. And then I send you back to the original source publication. So initially, Senator Quirinion said, all right, we'll we'll exclude hyperlinks and we'll only apply this royalty if somebody copies and pastes an entire article or a, a substantive, substantial, significant portion thereof. Well, anybody under 50 knows that's not how people share things on social media. I mean, once upon a time before there was Facebook, sometimes people actually did used to do that. They used to just like cut and paste and steal and plagiarize my columns and put them on their on their websites and their blogs. Um, and then the journal would call them and say, don't do that because we have the copyright. And then they would be cowed and they would take it down. Um, but People really don't share in blocks of text like that anymore. Facebook discourages it by having character limits. And on Twitter, which is the number one site for sharing news stories, you, you, you can't share text like that at all um, because, you know, there's a, a strict character limit and people share hyperlinks. So initially, Senator Carignan's bill uh, excluded hyperlinks, and that made sense. But when I asked him about that in a committee hearing uh, he said, well, maybe we should include hyperlinks. And I was like, no, 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 that no, was, that, that wasn't the answer to the question. Don't, don't, don't do that. Uh, he said, oh, maybe we should amend the bill to include hyperlinks. And I was like, no, no, that doesn't actually fix the problem because you can't copyright a hyperlink. And then there's the question of what constitutes a significant or a substantial portion, which is not settled Canadian copyright law. But we do have, you know, fair use, fair dealing rulings, which say that, you know, you know, a bit, a bit in context you're allowed to use without violating copyright. I was taken aback when Senator Carignan suggested perhaps even reprinting a headline could be a copyright violation. Uh, so even sharing a hyperlink with a headline, he said that could be considered a substantial, significant portion of the story. I don't, you're the copyright expert. Does that, does I mean what 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 do you make of his argument?
0: Oh, I I, I must admit I found it to be a, a kind of stunning and and a bit depressing exchange. Uh, you you're absolutely right and the the notion that somehow it would be appropriate to say that that the a rights holder should be able to restrict someone from even pointing to their work, much less copyright such small amounts really creates an enclosure around in many ways the english language and expression which runs so directly counter to the goals of copyright you know this is just this is using a tool that is just not fit for purpose with respect to the kinds of behavior that that he thinks is is taking place and so my i must admit when i first read the bill my my first response was well Maybe just doesn't even understand how social media works in terms of news sharing, because it isn't this, as you say, sharing a full text. And if he's excluded what is essentially fair dealing plus and links, then then, well, then what's the point? It's not really achieving anything at all for him to then to suggest, well, OK, the way to fix that is to just make the enclosure even larger as you say, is, is is the wrong answer. It's it's one that I don't think would withstand any sort of scrutiny if it ever go to court, and and I think ultimately would harm many of the very players that you're hoping to help, because we all rely on on fair dealing. I mean, you talk about kind of competition in the news space. If there's almost a monopoly or exclusivity on. That particular kind of expression for whoever reported, let's say, on something first or printed it first, uh, then you lose some of that kind of competition that's really important for the the broader public sphere. So, well, yes, and, and, I, and really y- problematic.
1: And you lose what is actually the good thing about social media. I mean, I, I've talked a great deal at the beginning of this about how, you know, Twitter and Facebook came and took all our money, boo-hoo. But I mean, what Twitter has done is create a robust, I mean, at its best. Sometimes Twitter is at its worst, but some days Twitter is at its best. And when it's at its best, then you get to have those conversations and you get to see, um, you know, politicians and professors of economics and journalists and, you know, smart Uh, well-read members of the citizenry engaging in really interesting public policy debate because they can swap ideas and because they can swap information so easily. I mean, the things that people, sometimes it's easy to forget what we loved about the internet when, when we were young and naive and idealistic. Um, But it was that free exchange of ideas and information. It was the cross pollination. And if you, if you hive off the information, you you put people even more into bubbles and silos, but you know, I understand where Senator Carignon is coming from. I mean, he asked me personally to serve as the critic for his bill, and he did so because he knew that I cared as passionately as he did about the future of uh, of a news industry that supports democratic engagement and you know the the free the free exchange of of factual information, um, and so. You know, I mean, I may be taking my role as critic a bit too literally, but his bill, however well-intentioned, doesn't do what he wants it to do. And worse than that, uh, it creates a whole lot of uh, sort of a cascade of unintended consequences. So first of all, he would take away freelancers' rights to the reproduction of their material. And under the bill, a freelancer would have to assign their rights to the publisher. And then negotiate for a share of royalties. That you know, uh, for you know, uh, for for some of the other copyright experts I spoke to, that's really problematic because instead of supporting independent journalism, you're actually taking existing rights away from 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 rights holders who who work on a freelance basis. Uh, And then you get into the other unintended consequence, which is, okay, suppose you do put newspapers into copyright collectives and they do negotiate with the big players and they do manage to do what sort of they've done in Australia, which is to bring the big players to the table and force them to negotiate that, you know, maybe the bill doesn't really do what it sets out to do, but it it gets the wind up and the big players like Google and, and Apple and Facebook say, okay, it's better to cut some kind of deal than to than to deal with the you know with the uh, to deal with the annoyance the, the nuisance that this represents. So who benefits? And you know my real concern is that if you look at a site like Google News or Apple News, you what you'll see is that it shares primarily stories from the big big media players. It's the Globe and Mail, it's the Toronto Star, it's the Toronto Sun, uh, Global uh, the CBC and you don't see any stories from from newspapers in Penticton or Rimouski or Bathurst or or Regina. So who's going to benefit primarily under this model? As Senator Guerignon himself acknowledged in committee, it will be the really big players. Because if you get royalties based on how many times people share your stories and you're a small regional daily, you're not going to, you're not going to see benefit from this. And what it will do instead is give the most money to the people who are already the biggest players. And that doesn't help regional media. It doesn't help francophone media. Uh, it doesn't help the people who are really going to need it most.
0: Yeah, no, I'm really glad you raised that, that aspect of it. I had uh, Jeff LG from village media on the podcast a number of months ago talking about innovation in the sector and the fear that that the, the innovative, the new players have yes. is that you embed essentially these legacy players through these kinds of mechanisms and you don't kind of get to where we need to get to, which is to support innovation across the sector. It's not limited to just new startups. We'd like to see innovation, I think, from all players. But if you establish frameworks that sort of essentially make legacy beholden to these large players and yeah. funnel money to them regularly. What happens to innovation in the space? What happens to these startups?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you get something like the line or the sprawl or salt wire or, you know, uh, lots of, I mean, I can't go with them all. the narwhal the national observer, all these, all these, you know, the uh, start, you know, they're not even startups anymore. All these digital players, where are they in this? I mean, their whole their whole delivery mechanism relies on being shared on social media. So that's the other thing. You don't really want to give Facebook a reason to say, sorry, we're not sharing Canadian media content anymore, because then you will have, you know, you will have really put digital players at a tremendous uh, competitive disadvantage. And then, you know, you get to a more subtler philosophical question. I mean, what is the real problem here? I mean, well, there, there are two. One is that There's not enough advertising revenue to sustain um, legacy media, or frankly, even to sustain small digital startups. But the other one is a subtler, more philosophical point, which is that we now get most of our news in this country curated for us by American corporations and their algorithms. So who decides what you see in the morning when you uh, fire up your computer or turn on your phone? not the editor of the globe and mail not the editor of the edmonton journal not the editor of the vancouver sun uh it's somebody uh somebody it's some robot um that's deciding what you're gonna see and it i think it is a legitimate subject for public policy debate to ask ourselves to what extent do we surrender our cultural and political sovereignty to the curation of these giant American corporations who have their own political and uh, cultural agendas so that we do not have sovereignty over what we read. And fundamentally, if S225 actually worked, despite all the, the the questions you and I have raised about it, what it would really do is entrench that symbiotic parasitic relationship so that we we would be even more beholden to those major American websites uh, to access our news. So, you know, I'm sure that is not what Senator Carignan intends, I know it isn't. Uh, You know, he's brought forward this bill I think it's a great thing that he's brought this bill forward because it's making us have this conversation and it's making people think really hard inside and outside the Senate about what is the nature of the problem and what are the potentials for solutions and to what extent are we crying for the moon waiting to go back to the golden age. Michael Buble is not going to be playing any more command performances for the Edmonton Journal newsroom. That Those days are done. So what is our... What is our desired end game? What is the goal of a public policy? It can't just be to support big legacy media companies. And it can't just be to create a, you know, sort of a feudal relationship with Google and Facebook so that we come to them cap in hand and demand that they underwrite the Canadian news industry just because they're rich. That doesn't, that, do, that does not solve our problem of access to information that is in our public interest and not in Mark Zuckerberg's.
0: No, I think you're right. That that, that is fabulous. It, It raises, I think, two last questions for you. You know, one, talking about that dependence. We have seen a growing number of news media organizations strike deals with Google and Facebook. Initially in Canada, there were very few, but we started to see a bit more happening now. What do you think uh, of those deals given given what you just said about concerns around dependence on these companies?
1: Well, it's interesting because just, you know, just as I was making like, Literally in the middle of my 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 speech on S two two five, the news broke that uh, Google had made a deal with a bunch of sort of an interesting smaller players, Le Devoir and the Soleil and the uh, Free Press papers, but also um, SaltWire, uh, To Blog, the Sprawl, the Narwhal, the National Observer, uh, a bunch of sort of you know smaller players who have established a, a strong critical reputation. And the nature of the deal is a bit vague. Uh, Google hasn't said how much they're paying them or sort of on what basis. But the idea was that they would pay some consideration for linking to the specific work that those outlets did on climate change and COVID-19. It's an interesting combination. And, and maybe it's like some, some other unspecified topics. So it's great to see Those new media organizations and and the legacy ones like uh, like, like Le Devoir uh, getting support from Google, good for them. I don't know how much support it is. I don't know if it's support that is going to make a meaningful, substantive difference to their bottom line. Um, But it does, you know, it strengthens the degree of leverage that Google has over them now and in the future. And, you know, newspapers and news organizations always had to make these deals with their advertisers and their subscribers. I mean, nobody got rich in the newspaper business without giving some consideration to the sensitivities of their readers and the sensitivities of their advertisers. But at least those were local people whom you could, you know, yell at over a boardroom table. And if um as happened, I remember once at the Edmonton Journal, you know, a I guess I won't name them because that's mean, but a local substantive advertiser to the Edmonton Journal uh announced that it was pulling all its advertising because it didn't like some stories the paper had written. And the paper told them basically, fine, suit yourselves, because we're the only game in town. And eventually they came back and 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 place their advertising, but you could negotiate with your advertisers. How do you negotiate with Google and Facebook if you are so, de- you know, either you're not dependent upon them and the amount of money they're giving you is de minimis and it's not going to save you, or you're so dependent upon them that you're now in a vassal relationship. And that may be awkward at some point going forward.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, So if, there are there are benefits, but there are some risks with with, the, with this approach on the licensing side. You've identified the concerns with the the, the bill that's before the Senate right now. Uh, it's great that we're having this conversation, but when people ask, "Well, what do we do?" Uh, what do you say?
1: <laughs> if if I if I knew the answer to this question, I would have had Paul Godfrey's job, um, and I would have saved Post Media. You know. Everybody thinks they have an answer. Oh, if we just put the newspaper on a tablet. Oh, if we just you know uh, create a, a, a if, if, you know if we just have a casino that runs online next to our newspaper. I mean, I don't blame newspapers and publishing companies for for grasping at straws because they're facing cataclysmic existential uh, collapse, and when you're desperate. You you know, desperate times can call for desperate measures. I don't know what the answer is. I do know that once you digitize information, readers don't want to pay for it. And you know, the number of people who self-righteously tell me that, oh, well, I would never subscribe to the paper and I would never get a digital subscription. and also I have ad blockers on, but then are mad that the paper doesn't cover the things they want to see covered anymore. And you know how come how come you know, how come the there's so few reporters? Well, if you won't pay for the content, I, I remember when I when I first went on social media, and there was a young blogger in Edmonton who who wrote a whole essay about how shameful it was that I was still working for the paper and why didn't I just give away the information for free? And I thought, you know, because I'm paying for my kids' braces, and also, do you think I want to cover city council meetings for you for free? Do you think I do that for 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 fun? Uh, if you if you want good investigative journalism, if you want good coverage of local events that are happening in c- your community, if you actually want to know what's going on where you live, then I think people are going to have to have an epiphany where they realize that that doesn't come for free. And, and I think part of the problem, especially over the last four years, is that even people who fancied themselves supporters of the news? Well, they went out and got digital subscriptions to the Washington Post and the New York Times, so they could obsessively read everything that Donald Trump said and fret over it. Um, you know, now that you can read the Guardian online and you can read the Economist online and you can read Le Div- you can read Le Monde and you can read you know the you can read whatever newspaper you want in the world. Whatever you know, you can read BBC and Al Jazeera and and what have you. You know, people have sort of become unmoored from the communities in which they live. But I can tell you that The Guardian is never going to cover uh, the issue of your local safe consumption site. And I can tell you that uh, that The Washington Post doesn't care about what's wrong with Ottawa's LRT construction. If you want to know what's happening where you live and you want people to report on it, you, we're going to have to figure out some way to pay for that. I and, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't think asking Mark Zuckerberg to do it is necessarily the best answer.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I do wonder, though, in, implicit in, in your response just now, is perhaps the answer is that you know you, you said people won't pay for, don't want to pay for the news. I, I, I must admit, I'm not so sure because, as you said, there are people that, uh, and I'm one of them, that pays for the Washington Post and the New York Times. I also pay for the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star and for the Athletic. Um, and for Cart and a whole series of others, I frankly think I spend more now on digital news than I than I ever did before when I used to have several papers coming to the door. Uh, and that's because there's certain publications that I think are worth paying for. So perhaps isn't that the issue more than anything else that you know the the, the competition that you talked about earlier points to the fact that it isn't so much that people aren't aren't willing to pay; they are if you show that there's real value and that with these kind of scraped down enterprises, offering less isn't giving someone a good reason to pay for it. No,
1: and th- and that is the problem. So it becomes, I'm looking for the right metaphor, self-fulfilling prophecy doesn't seem quite right. But yes, I mean, as you, as you have set your life raft on fire, log by log, uh, I mean, people used to read their local newspaper, not just because of the news, but because they felt a sense of connection to the regular writers. I mean, I remember a time at the Edmonton Journal when we had you know food writers who people i mean people adored the food writers i mean they just worshiped them that they were they were they were celebrities the local film reviewer that people you know loved to hate there were you know th- there were these these senses of pride of ownership in the paper in which people really felt that they were connected not just to the news but to the people who gave them the news and once you sever those relationships, it's really hard to build them back up. And, you know, once people have lost that habit, you know, my my daughter is 24 and she's super duper smart and she's a law student at the University of Victoria and she cares about current affairs. And does she have a subscription to the Victoria Times columnist? She does not. Did she ever think about getting a subscription to the Victoria Times columnist? Of course not. She gets her news in other ways, but does she actually know what's going on in the community where she's chosen to go to law school? Not really, uh, not unless someone shares it on Facebook or Twitter.
0: Or yeah, no, yeah. I think that's the, I think that that experience reflects the experience of, of many, which is why you know the why why this is really an important discussion and debate. Uh, you know, I think some of the solutions are ill advised, but we do need to to be talking about ways to address those those broader issues. Well,
1: and if and if this If this bill and this conversation and the debate we're having in the Senate, I mean, if this focuses some people's attention and, you know, sometimes uh, I remember at the paper at one point they brought in some consultant who said that we had to learn to fail fast. So we had to try different things and then fail at them. And then we would learn that that didn't work. Uh, The Senate is not a good place for failing fast. Nothing happens fast in the Senate, but it is a good place for trial balloons and it is a good place to kick around ideas. And that's that's the gift of the Senate because we're not tied to an election cycle, because we're not, you know, worried about saving our jobs, you know, six months or two years from now, whenever that will be. Um, we we have the luxury and the responsibility to take controversial ideas and kick them around and play with them and run them up the flag. And, the, the, you know, I've run out of metaphors and cliches now, but um. That's why that's one of the reasons you have a Senate, um, is that we can be sort of this sandbox where ideas get, get tried out. And if they don't work, well, then that didn't work. But at least we had the discussion of why it might or might not.
0: I'm I'm glad you're having that discussion, and I'm really glad to have had this discussion. This was a great conversation. Senator Simons, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, so thank you.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod.com or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at Michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LaBites Podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at Michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist,